Tis an ocean vast of blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Lord, may we not take it for granted as we come to the end of a busy day for many of us, perhaps the beginning of a, a week of travel or other busyness. Lord, certainly we need to know in whatever situation we are in that we have in you an ocean vast of blessing, not a thimble, not a glass, not even a river, an ocean vast of blessing, a haven sweet of rest. May we find blessing and find rest in you now as we learn from your word of these great and precious promises that are ours in Christ Jesus through his grace. We pray in his name, amen. We come this evening to the end of our short series on the Canons of Dort. We have been commemorating the 400th anniversary of this synod, which met in the Dutch city of Dortrecht in 1618 to 1619. And so we may not have another sermon series on Dort for 100 years. So if any of you are here, I hope you enjoy it. We have been learning as we move through this series the five points of Calvinism, as they're sometimes called. And I said in the very first week that that's a bit of a misnomer. There's much more to Reformed faith than these five points. And even the acronym of TULIP cannot fully capture all that we see here in the canons of Dort. But we come now to the last of these five doctrines, the so-called P, the perseverance of the saints. Of these five points, this is the one that most Christians are most eager to affirm. And yet, it's also the one that many Christians misunderstand. A lot of Christians will gladly hold to the doctrine of eternal security, it's sometimes called. Or you may say, I've had people say before, Pastor, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I say, well, that depends on what you mean by once saved, always saved. We have to get beyond just the slogans. Too often, Christians have a mechanical view of salvation, and therefore, they have an unbiblical view of eternal security. They see getting saved as something that infallibly took place when you walked an aisle at the end of a sermon a preacher said, if anyone wants to invite Jesus into their heart, you come forward this morning, or you raised your hand, or someone led you in praying the sinner's prayer, or you threw in your pine cone in the fire at summer camp, whatever you did to signify, yes, I'm a Christian. And now that you've taken that step, people will say, well, once saved, always saved. And sometimes the implication and sometimes even the explicit teaching that follows is once saved, always saved, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you live your life, as long as you took that magical step of salvation, you now have your get out of jail free card forever. Like when you're playing Monopoly and you have that card and you end up in jail and you can just say, uh-uh, get out of jail free. And some of us think of salvation in that way. I prayed the prayer, or my child prayed the prayer when, when he was eight. And now 
haven't followed anything of Christ for 50 years, but he will get to heaven and he'll say, aha, uh-huh, but I prayed the prayer and I walked the aisle and I raised my hand when I was eight and I have the get out of jail free card. That's what some people understand by once saved, always saved, or by eternal security. But as we'll see tonight, that's not what the canons of Dort mean by the perseverance of the saints, or sometimes called the preservation of the saints. Just think of those two P words, perseverance, preservation. This is not a doctrine to encourage spiritual lethargy or moral laxity. This is a doctrine that encourages the Christian to actively persevere in the faith. So it's a doctrine that those who are true saints will persevere. And as they persevere in repentance and godliness, it will be because God has unfailingly preserved his people. Those are active words. This final point, in other words, is all about what God works in us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. First John is the book, as much as any book in the Bible, that talks about assurance and how do we know that we're Christians and what are the, the signposts. And it also gives us a very nuanced view of these things. So for example, First John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There are many verses like that in 1 John, that you may know. You believe in the Son of God, you should know, not just that you will receive it, but you now have it. You are now in present possession of eternal life. No one can snatch that away from you. 1 John also has verses like this. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. What does that mean? It means there were some people who, who started with us and they looked to be a part of the covenant community and they maybe showed up to some services on Sunday and they have proven not to really have ever been of us because they did not continue with us. So on the one hand, 1 John can have the highest doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. We are in present possession of eternal life and at the same time, Understand that there are people who seem to be of us and do not continue with us and therefore prove to themselves and to others that they were not actually of us. So this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is massively important and it requires careful theological attention to move past just the slogans and to find the sturdier doctrines underneath. So let's look at these first eight articles If you have your sheet in front of you, the fifth main point of doctrine, Articles 1 through 8. These first eight articles can be summarized with two words. Two words, realistic and resolute. The picture Dort paints of the perseverance of the saints is one that is realistic about the human condition on this side of heaven while at the same time confident in the resolute nature of God's commitment 
to his chosen ones. So realistic about us, resolute about God. So look at how realistic Dort is about the struggles that continue to beset redeemed people. You see article one, although God has set us free from the dominion and slavery of sin, we are not, into there, we are not entirely free from the flesh and from the body of sin as long as we are in this life. Or you look at article two, it says we are still prone to daily sins of weakness and even our best works are marked by blemishes. So there is no doctrine of perfectionism here. Yes, we ought to see, we'll notice this later, we ought to see distinguishing marks of the Spirit of God at work in our life. But there is nothing in Dort and nothing in the Bible, more importantly, to suggest that we are ever going to be close to sinless on this side of heaven. There are some Christian traditions that have a doctrine of complete or total sanctification or teach Christian perfectionism. But we know from 1 John 1, 9, that if you say you are without sin, the truth is not in you. You deceive yourself. Elsewhere in 1 Kings or in Ecclesiastes, it said there is no one who sins not. And we have the testimony of the Apostle Paul himself, Romans 7. We think that to be his testimony as a Christian, saying the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the thing that I don't want to do, that's the very thing I keep on doing. And all of us can testify to that in our own lives. Dort also understands that sin continues to be offensive to God. There is sometimes a kind of, how do I put it nicely, a kind of muddle-headed piety which suggests that regeneration and justification make God blind to our faults. Justified, have you ever heard this stuff? Justified means justified, never sinned. Uh, ish, um, not exactly. It's not just as if you've never sinned. In fact, the cross testifies you have sinned. Your sins haven't been forgotten by God. They've, they've been forgotten covenantally, but they've been nailed to the cross. They've been dealt with. And even on the other side of conversion, it's not as if conversion makes God somehow blind to sin or our sins that you commit now as believers are invisible before him. If you look at Article 5, you just turn the page. It says, by such monstrous sins, however, it's talking about the sins of believers. It's just referenced David or Peter or other saints falling into sin. It says, by such monstrous sins, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience. Sometimes we even lose the awareness of grace for a season. So we can be mired in these sins of disobedience. And they are sins that grieve the Holy Spirit. It's not as if God just, sometimes we, we flatten our relationship with God and we only think, okay, God only deals with us from a legal standpoint. And if legally I've been justified, then any sins I now commit as a Christian, just I'm acquitted, I'm innocent, and therefore those sins, he doesn't even see them. But of course, we relate to God not just as a judge who either says guilty or innocent, but we relate to him as a father. And as every parent understands, you love your children deeply. 
you love them forever. They're your children. And yet, just because they're your children, when they sin doesn't mean they're invisible to you, their sins, far from it. You're not blind to them. They grieve you, just as our sins grieve the Holy Spirit. The hymn writer is right. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In fact, because of the continuing presence of indwelling sin and because of ongoing temptations from the world, the flesh, and the devil, look at Article 3 back on the other page. Left to ourselves, we would not remain in this standing of grace. Apart from God's intervention, it would not only be possible for us to forfeit saving faith, but it would undoubtedly happen. Go back other page now to Article 8. You see there the second sentence, with respect to themselves, this not only easily could happen, talking about forfeiting faith, but also undoubtedly would happen. This would happen were it not for God's preserving grace. Each one of us would make shipwreck of the faith. And incidentally, this is a a problem for the Arminian view that wants to put such an emphasis upon the necessity of human free will. That if human free will is such an undeniable good, and in fact, you, you must have this ability to, of your own choosing, fall away, become unjustified. If that is such an intrinsic part of being a human being, what will we be like in heaven? Do we still have that? Well, if we don't have it in heaven, then, then why must we insist that we have that now? And if we must have it now in order to be truly human, then in heaven we have it. Well, if in heaven we have that same kind of freedom, who's to say that you don't get five good years into heaven and then you make a mess of it? The angels did that. The angels had a rebellion. The angels were cast down. How can we be certain that in heaven we won't have a really good run for, you know, a thousand years of worshiping God and then we'll choose again and we'll start this whole thing over again in another mess? We would do that were it not for God's sustaining grace. So the canons of door are very realistic about the continuing presence of indwelling sin. But they're also confident in God's resolute purposes. So realistic and resolute that God will safely bring us to the finish line. He will not take the Holy Spirit from his own. Look at article six. Neither will he, quote, let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification in the middle of article six. Although we sin and struggle and may even stray from the path God's purpose and election will stand, Romans 9, 11. It is not possible to destroy and deceive the elect, Matthew 24, 24. Or as Article 4 puts it here, the power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh. If you want to go back to 1 John 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But notice that this preserving grace is more than a passive protection. 
God causes us to persevere by actively working in us what we need to keep walking with Christ. So look at Article 7, Renewal to Repentance. There are two things highlighted here. It says, in the first place, God preserves in those saints when they fall the imperishable seed from which they have been born again. So that's the first thing that God actively does. He does not let the seed of the word die or be removed. You know, the parable of the sower and the soils and the seed that fell along the rocky path or among the thorns or the sandy ground. Well, those who are truly converted, truly justified, the seed is there and it's an imperishable seed, Peter calls it. It's an eternal seed. That is to say, God keeps those sermons and those Bible studies and those memory verses doing their work in our hearts. And many of you have children and grandchildren on your hearts and you're praying that this is what's going on in their lives as they're not walking with the Lord right now. But they grew up in the church and they learned things and they went to VBS and you're, you're, you're hoping that that commitment they made was a genuine commitment and that now that imperishable seed of the word of God will keep working in their hearts with the things that they know. And then look at Article 7. There's a second thing God actively does to preserve us. By his word and spirit, God certainly and effectively renews them to repentance so that they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for their sins that they have committed. So that's the step. They have a repentant spirit. And then they seek and obtain through faith and with a contrite heart forgiveness. And then, as a final step, they experience again the grace of of a reconciled God. In other words, Dort has no place for carnal Christianity. Heard that phrase before? Well, he's a carnal Christian. You know, maybe he has God for, Jesus is his savior, but not his Lord. And he, he had Jesus in his heart, and he still does, but he's a carnal Christian. He's living in the flesh. Well, we do fall. We do make decisions in the flesh. But as God preserves us, you see, this is why I set apart sometimes the wrong notions of eternal security, that you can just go through and just sin, sin, sin. I love sin. No, sin's no big deal to me. But hey, I made a profession one time when I was 10, and therefore I'm good to go. That's not what perseverance means. God causes you to persevere by bringing you to a repentance for those sins, not a carnal acceptance of those sins but to a state of contrition of heart so that you say, God, I'm so sorry against you, only have I sinned. And then you know his forgiveness and that restored relationship. The doctrine of perseverance does not negate repentance. It leads to repentance. The grace that saves a wretch like me is also the grace that will lead us home. Resolute and realistic now turn to look at Articles 9 through 14, all but the, the last article. We've already seen that the promise of divine preservation is not a promise of sinful perfection in this life. On the contrary, when we sin in egregious ways, we sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. God being for us in Christ in a legal sense does not mean he will never frown upon our disobedience as a heavenly father. 
Sometimes Christians act like, no, you can't use that language. That God's never displeased with Christians. Well, are you ever displeased with your children? Do they ever do anything to displease you? Of course they do. Does that mean you've stopped loving them? Does that mean you're no longer for them? Does that mean now you're their judge, jury, and executioner? Hopefully not. But they displease you. Just as we can sin sins that displease our Heavenly Father. But... As his children, he will always effectively renew us to repentance and bring us to experience this grace again. So we ought to be assured, look at Article 9, that true believers are and always will remain true and living members of the church and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the last line in Article 9. We ought to have this assurance you know, in some church traditions, and sadly, this is the case in some Reformed traditions, it is thought inappropriate and out of reach for normal Christians to have assurance. You can actually find churches like this. Sometimes, sadly, you, you can, strangely enough, you can find them in some very conservative Dutch Reformed circles where you have 500 people on a Sunday and you have 10 people who take the Lord's Supper because they've gotten the notion that to be truly spiritual is to be radically unsure about your salvation. Who, who would come to the table except if you were presumptuous? Who's to say that you really have saving faith? Isn't it a mark of humility rather to be unsure, uncertain of one's position before the Lord? It's arrogant presumption to, to, to say, well, yes, I know I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Well, that's certainly not what Dort teaches. It's true, assurance is not itself a requirement of true faith. This is important. Turn over the page to Article 11. Scripture testifies that believers have to contend in this life with various doubts of the flesh. The book of Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Now, it never says doubt is the goal. There are some newer churches sometimes that feel like to be real cool and kind of hipsterish, something I've never been accused of, either of those things, uh, that, you know, doubt is the goal. The, the, the journey is the thing, and it's about doubt, and man, it, you know, faith is so mysterious, and it's so, it's so, it's even more real when you doubt it all. No, that's not what the Bible says. Doubt is not the goal, and yet we don't want to go to the other side that say, you know, there's no room here for anyone who has any doubts. Have mercy on those who doubt, Jude says. Some people, by life experience, by personality, they struggle. Sometimes even very mature Christians at the end of their life struggle with, do, do I know for sure that, that this is real or that I'm for real? So Article 11 is, is wonderfully realistic that we will contend, some believers have to contend in this life with various doubts of the flesh and that under severe temptation, they do not always experience this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. So assurance is not of the essence of faith. You can be unsure and still be saved. You can have seasons where you doubt 
and still be exercising saving faith. The analogy that I've given before is uh, ice skating. You should try it sometime, go somewhere where it's real cold and they have ice sometimes and you skate on it and we would always go out in the winter and we'd play some hockey and, and you know, you kind of, all right, who's the first one to go out and see if this is frozen or not? That's why they make hockey sticks so long so you can at least reach a few feet and start banging on that thing. And if it goes through the water, then try the other side. But you may skate on that ice and you may be twirling and zipping around and absolutely confident that this ice is a foot thick. Or you may be nervous that at any moment the, the ice is going to break and it, it, it may only be it. But if it's a foot thick, you're not any less secure than the person who's skating with confidence. It's the thickness of the ice that is saving you, whether your faith is massive and deep or it's thin and lights. You're out on the ice. So you may not have assurance at all times and yet still be a true believer. So Dort is realistic here. But make no mistake, assurance is a goal of Christian discipleship. God wants us to have confidence. Look at Article 10, the, the last sentence there. If God's chosen ones in this world did not have this well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be of all people most miserable. We're meant to have assurance. You're meant to be confident. It's not presumption. How? What, what are the grounds for this assurance? That's what Article 10 is about. In asking that question, Dort is not asking what are the grounds for our justification. Do you understand the difference? The grounds for your justification, faith alone. We're asking a slightly different question. What are your grounds for knowing and believing and trusting that you have been saved by faith alone? What are the signposts? that will tell you you're on the right road, heading in the right direction. What are those grounds? So these are not the things that necessarily save us, but these are the things that testify to us that we are saved. And typical of the Reformed confessions, the Westminster Confession has these same three things. We see here in Article 10 that assurance is threefold. Look at it. It starts by saying this assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word. We're not looking for dreams and visions. We're not looking for a direct message. We're not looking for Jesus calling to you apart from the scriptures day by day. What are we looking for? Number one, we have assurance from faith in the promises of God, which are very plentifully revealed in the word for our comfort. So that's one. Two, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs. And three, finally, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. So assurance comes from these three things. One, from faith in the promises of God. Two, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And three, from a holy pursuit of good works. Believers find assurance in the promises of God, the witness of the Spirit, and evidences of grace in their lives. You need all three of these things. Again, depending upon 
your personality or the person you're ministering to, one of these three things may need to be operative. There are sometimes you talk to Christians and, and they are, are very fearful. They're easily discouraged. They quickly see all the sins in their lives. I, I've talked with people often like this. And, and they, they wonder if they're a Christian. And if you say, well, look at the evidence of grace in your life. They say, I don't see any evidence of grace. Well, look at your pursuing after holiness. No, not as good as I could be. So for those struggling saints, you need to go to the first one, the promises of God. You, you, you are say, rely on the promises of God. But there's sometimes other Christians who maybe are sort of cavalier about their Christian faith, and they need to have attention drawn to evidences of grace. Well, I know you profess this, but are, are you actively pursuing this holiness without which we will not see the Lord? And then there are other times, that second one, which maybe we don't think enough of as Reformed Christians, but was absolutely essential to Calvin and the Reformers, the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. That sense, it's very subjective that the Spirit is speaking to your spirit, testifying, yes, I'm a child of God. I know that I'm a child of God. These three reasons, or rather grounds for assurance, suggests that the perseverance of the saints should never lead to sloth and immorality. You look at Article 13, assurance is no inducement to carelessness. We are confident of the Lord's undying love so much that it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the way of the Lord which he prepared in advance. You see that in the first sentence in Article 13. As born-again, beloved children, we long to know the smile of our gracious God. Do you see at the end of Article 13, this, this, this is so rich. Some, you know, people think canon's a door, and you guys studied this for five weeks. That's just so egg-heady and dry, dusty. Now, look at this. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them, they may maintain the assurance of their per perseverance, lest by their abuse of God's fatherly goodness, the face of the gracious God... And then in parentheses, for the godly, looking upon that face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death. That's why we follow hard after God, because for the real believer, that smiling face of our heavenly father is the most precious thing to us. So Dort believes that holiness is not only a ground for assurance, but the desire for assurance is itself a motivation unto holiness. Believers should not look only to their holy living for assurance, but this should be one place that they look. We see evidences of grace in us. Do you know, brothers and sisters, you have permission to see evidences of grace in your life? You do? We don't have to, this is canons of door. Okay, this is high Calvinism. There's nothing in here that says, hey, shame on you for thinking that God's doing something in your life. If you're a real Christian, especially a Reformed Christian, you got nothing ever. No, it says you, you ought to see. Now, this can be hard to see in ourselves, which is why we need the body of Christ. Assurance is a community project. That's why the elders here take so seriously shepherding 
the flock of God, but because when, when we receive someone into membership, we are testifying before God and before the world that as far as we can tell, this person is making a credible profession of faith and walking in faith and repentance, and they belong here as a child of God. And if we were to put somebody outside of the flock, it would be to testify that we do not see those things. So you have the, the spiritual leaders of your church, if you're a member here, testifying to you and to the world that we see evidences of grace in your life. Do you ever share with your husband, roommate, friend, spouse, children, parents, hey, do you know I see evidences of grace in your life? I see spiritual fruit. I'm sort of pulling down the fruit from your life right now and mm, mm, it tastes a little bit like patience. Mm, a little bit like self-control. A little bit more than it was six months ago, six years ago. You can't do it, you know, how is it this Wednesday versus last Wednesday or how is it Monday versus Friday. Don't ever gauge your sanctification on Monday. You know, pick a different day, but... Over months, over years, you ought to see these evidences of grace, and that testifies to you, God is at work in me, and he who has begun a good work will be faithful to complete it. And then look at Article 14. Notice just a few things here before we move to the last article. First, notice that God works by hearing the gospel and by use of the sacraments. Article 14, just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so God preserves, continues, and completes this work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by use of the sacraments. We often forget about baptism and the Lord's Supper as means of grace, but they are essential in the cause of gospel confidence. When when we have a baptism... You're supposed to be recalling your own baptism, whether, you know, even if you're an infant and you don't remember it, you can recall that you were baptized. And as you see the the water being applied, it's supposed to be a means of grace to you. You think that I've been cleansed, I've been washed new. And by faith, these promises are my promises. And when you come to the Lord's Supper, I love how the Heidelberg Catechism says it. So surely as the bread touches your mouth and the juice touches your lips, so surely do you know that Christ died for you and loves you and has forgiven you. You come to the Lord's table, say, how do do I know that God's for me, not against me? Is it really true? Well, can you feel the bread? Can you taste this? Can you touch it? So surely has God forgiven you. It's, It's... a means of our assurance. And then second, notice here in Article 14, God causes us to persevere by several means. He makes promises, but he also threatens. You say, I don't know about that. I thought this was, you know, once saved, always saved. Don't give me threats. But do you understand how God causes you to persevere by giving you exhortations and threats? Imagine you take your child to the zoo, and she's nervous. I don't know, mommy, daddy, there's a lot of big animals there. And you say, well, honey, I I promise you, you are going to be okay. 
We're going to have a good time, and I promise you, you will be safe at the zoo. Now, when you're there, how will you keep her safe? When she climbs on the fence, when she begins to say, look how shiny the teeth are in here, you say, well, I, I, I promise. I just want to give you gospel promises right now. Everything's going to be okay, sweetie. I promise you. No, if you love her and you cause her to persevere, you're going to give her some well-timed threats. Get off the fence. Stay out of that room. Keep your hands to yourself. That thing is rattling. Get away. Listen to me or you will be disciplined. Now you say, well, why, why are you such a, why are you returning back to the law? No, that's good news if it keeps you safe. So it is with God. He has not bound himself to just one method. Doesn't this help you to make sense of the very stern warnings in, say, the book of Hebrews? Sometimes you read Hebrews and say, well, how can we believe in the perseverance of the saints? It's some really strong language about people falling away. Listen, full-throated threats and exhortations do not undermine perseverance. They help to complete perseverance. So I have, as a Reformed pastor, I have no problem at all preaching and telling you, if you don't turn away from your sins, I don't care what profession you made when you were seven years old, you're not going to see God in heaven. He said, well, how can you say that? Once saved, always saved. Uh, if that's the text, I have no problem making that sort of threat and exhortation under God's authority. You know why? Because in his people, in those who are truly saved, you hear that threat and you say, oh, Lord, keep me in the love of God. I, I have been wandering from the path and I want to come back, just like your child climbing on the gorilla fence. Okay, I'm going to get down. I hear mommy's voice and she loves me. So God works by promises, by threats, by exhortations. And then notice the broad way in which Dort understands the gospel. You notice there, the hearing and reading of the gospel by meditation on it, that is the gospel, and by its, that is the gospel's exhortations, threats, and promises. Now, in one sense, you could say, well, the gospel is good news. The gospel is an announcement of what God does to save us, and that's true, but you can also speak of the gospel in a broader context used here that this story of salvation, this good news by which we are saved includes promises and threats and exhortations. They are all instrumental in God's plan to grow us in grace. And we should not neglect any of these three in our overall diet of counseling, preaching, teaching, parenting, promises, threats, exhortations. Just be good to sort of think, how, how, how am I doing with those as a parent? How am I doing those with the, the college students I'm mentoring? How am I doing with uh, the people in my, my Bible study? All three of those God uses to keep us persevering. And then we come to this final article, 15. In this last article, Dort explains why the doctrine of the perseverance of true believers is so necessary and so glorious, even though it is sometimes ridiculed and rejected. Let me give you just a little bit of the, the history, and then we'll wrap this up. You remember that leading up to the Synod of Dort, the Arminians, they were called the Remonstrants. A remonstrant is a 
someone who protests, and so they issued the remonstrance of 1610, which is a formal protest, a disagreement with the Reformed doctrine as it was taught. Here's what they said about this point, perseverance, in the 1610 document. Quote, but whether they can, through negligence, fall away from the first principle of their life in Christ, again embrace the present world, depart from the pure doctrine once given to them, lose the good conscience, and neglect grace, we must first more carefully determine from the Holy Scriptures before we shall be able to teach this with full persuasion of our heart. In other words, they came to this point and they said, we're not sure yet. We're not sure about perseverance of the saints. We're, we're, we're not quite ready to say that, yes, you will infallibly be saved to the end if you are justified. But by 1618, when the synod was meeting, and they brought the Arminians before them, and they made another statement of their beliefs. This was called the opinions of the remonstrance in 1618. Here, they had come to a fuller conviction, and they had come to a fuller conviction that they did not believe in the perseverance of the saints. They did believe, quote, true believers with as much grace and supernatural powers as he judges, according to his infinite wisdom, have been given grace sufficient for persevering. So they believe that, hey, look, God has everything at his disposal to help you persevere, but they believed that it was finally up to man whether he would persevere or not. And so they affirmed, I'm quoting here from the Arminians, quote, true believers can fall from true faith. Later they said true believers can persevere in, quote, shameful and atrocious deeds and finally fall and perish. Here's a, a last paragraph from them. This is worth hearing just so you know what Dort is arguing against. This is, here's the Arminians. A true believer can and ought indeed to be certain for the future that he is able by diligent watchfulness through prayers and through other holy exercises to persevere in true faith. And he ought also to be certain that divine grace for preserving will never be lacking. Okay, well, that sounds good. We ought to be certain that God has grace for us. We ought to be, but did you notice some of the conditional links? We ought to be certain that by our holy exercises, we can make this happen. But here's what they end up saying. But we do not see how he can be certain that he will never afterwards be remiss in his duty, but that he will persevere in faith and in those works of piety and love, which are fitting for a believer in the school of Christian warfare. Neither do we deem it necessary that concerning this thing, a believer should be certain? That was the Arminian view. It leaves the believer in a very tenuous position. On the one hand, he can be certain that God has enough grace to help him, and that if the believer does his part, he will persevere. But in the final analysis, the believer cannot be certain that he actually will persevere. This is the logical price one must pay for a commitment to saving faith that is conditioned upon the choice of human will from start to finish. Have you seen this throughout these five points of doctrine? Conditioned always upon the human will. Yes, you're elect, but it's conditioned upon God seeing that you would choose him. Yes, you will have uh, saving faith in the atonement applied, but that's conditioned upon first your faith to have it effectually applied. 
step by step. It's conditioned upon the human will. By contrast, Dort affirms that no plan can avail and no strength can prevail against God. You see that in Article 15. And that includes the power of human willing and doing. The golden chain in Romans 8.30, from predestination in eternity to effectual calling and justification in history to final glorification in heaven cannot be broken. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those who predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justifies, he will infallibly, assuredly, unfailingly glorify. Or as Article 8 says in the Canons of Dort, God's plan cannot be changed. God's promise cannot fail. The calling according to God's purpose cannot be revoked. The merits of Christ as well as interceding and preserving cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. We already have eternal life. This is one sure reason why those who truly believe will persevere to the end. You, brothers and sisters, cannot be unjustified. You cannot be unborn again. You cannot be lost after you have already been found. So we will not lose what God has chosen to give to us. We will not forfeit what Christ has perfectly accomplished and infallibly applied. And we will not, in the end, resist the grace that first entered our lives irresistibly. This teaching, Dort reminds us, is for the glory of his name and for the comfort of the godly. You see that at the top of page 140, article 15. The glory of his name and the comfort of the godly. Those words... You could fly like a banner over every article and every point in the canons of Dort. On the other side of all of the fine-tuned polemics and all of the precise theology, we're meant to reach this conclusion. God is bigger than we thought and grace is better than we imagined. If ever there were a it's not about me, faith. It should be the reformed faith. We did not choose to be elect. We did not die for our sins. We did not raise ourselves from the grave. We did not conjure up the miracle of faith. And we will not, by our own free will, finish the race. We need a God who does the unconditional electing a God who does the effectual dying, a God who does the supernatural resurrecting, a God who does the unilateral gifting, a God who does the unbreakable preserving. That's the grace that is grace from start to finish. That's the grace we need. That's the God we worship. And so it's fitting that the very last words in Article 15 say to this God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. Amen. And so we can praise God for old confessions and much more. We praise God for his mercies, planned from eternity and new every morning unto the very end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for... 
faithful men who have written these things down and hammered out these truths. And though they are imperfect men and imperfect documents, we thank you for how they lead us into your word and remind us of things or teach us things for the first time. We pray that these words would fly like a banner over Christ's covenant for the glory of God and for the comfort of his people. That we might be a church that exalts highly, loudly, strongly, and humbly in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would make us a confident people, a gracious people, a kind people, and that we would know you in all of your glory, in all of your grace. In Jesus we pray, amen.